And yes, today's passage in Ephesians chapter 5, uh, beginning of verse 21, going down to verse 33, is all about husbands and wives and marriage. And we're going to see, actually in our third point, that Paul uses the entire thing as a metaphor for how Jesus, how Christ loves and gives himself for the church. As we uh, get into the sermon, I again want to encourage you, uh, if you have questions throughout the sermon, comments, uh, continue to post them. And feel free, uh, if you feel like you know the answer, to uh, engage and try to answer each other's questions. Well, we've seen that the Apostle Paul in uh, chapter 5 of Ephesians has gotten really practical for us. Uh, Last week, he talked about the blueprint for our individual lives as followers of Jesus Christ. And today, he shifts from the individual to the marriage relationship, husband and wives. You know, in Canada, over the last 70 years, we have seen the divorce rate just skyrocket in Canada. Back in 1951, for the entire country of Canada, there were 5,270 divorces. That was out of a total population of just over 14 million people in 1951. Then they did another poll, Statistics Canada, I can say that. Uh, We had a population of 35.6 million people, and there were 70,226 divorces in 2008. That is a whopping 1,232% increase in total divorces over 50 years. And in the last few years, you know what the biggest spike in divorces has been? People getting divorced with less than three years of marriage. Now, Hollywood stars seem to get married and divorced incredibly fast. I looked up a few of them this week. Uh, Pop singer Katy Perry, comedian and actor Russell Brand, they were married for 14 months and 11 days before calling it quits and filing for divorce. Then we had Jim Carrey and Lauren Hawley married for only 10 months. Then Michael Jackson and Lisa Marie Presley were married for only 9 months. And Drew Barrymore, the actress, and Tom Green, the comedian, They only lasted five months and three weeks. Now, I want to be clear, that is not all Hollywood marriages, uh, but disproportionately famous musicians and, and Hollywood actors seem spectacularly bad at staying married for any length of time. Now, the general population in Canada, the U.S., Europe, were not quite as bad as that. Most marriages tend to last longer than five months, But we are catching up fast. And I think we can all agree that when God designed marriage, he didn't have marriages that only last five months and three weeks in mind. So where do we go? Where do we go for biblical commands and principles that will help guide our marriage relationships so they can go the distance. They can, we can celebrate 50th wedding anniversaries. Well, turns out that the best advice is right here in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 21 to 33. I'm going to read a couple of those verses for you right now. The Apostle Paul, under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, writes these words. He says, Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do 
to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. So Paul starts us off with a doozy here. He starts talking about this concept of submitting, submission. Oh, that's a pretty popular concept in North America in 2020. Not. Most people hear that and go, are you crazy? Why would you bring up an awful old practice that pushed women down, held them in a miserable existence under the dominating thumb of a jerk of a husband? But just before we jump to that conclusion, I think we need to ask if that is actually what the biblical text is trying to say. You see, we've been trained by our world, by our experiences, by the extreme stories of abuse, that the only way submission works is for one person to be the dominant, self-serving ruler, and the other person to bow their head in defeat and submit to do whatever the other person commands you to do, no matter how crazy. You know what? If that was what God was calling us to do, that is totally outlandish and certainly not workable in 2020. But when we read it carefully, it turns out to be a very different kind of submission. First of all, it's a mutual submission. Wives submitting to their husbands and husbands submitting to their wives. Now that is what we expect in 2020, but when the Holy Spirit first guided the Apostle Paul to write those words, that was radical and shocking. You know, all three dominant cultures in the ancient Near East, the Jewish culture in the land of Israel, the Greek and the Roman culture, they were completely male-dominated societies. Men held the power. They were the rulers of their households. Then along comes the Christian faith and says, whoa, whoa, whoa. Following Jesus means we have to do marriage in a different way. It's really about mutual love, respect, and service. You know, that's true even of, of countries. Be that a prime minister, a president, a king, or a queen. If they are operating out of good, solid principles of leadership, they know the whole reason their position exists is ultimately to serve the people. Unfortunately, history has a lot of Stalins and Hitlers and Kim Jong-uns of North Korea that are the worst opposite of mutual love, respect, and service. They're in it to dominate the world and become dictators. But there have been lots of good leaders in history as well. If we think of our own history as Canadians, prime ministers like William Lyon Mackenzie King, Wilfrid Laurier, Lester B. Pearson, American presidents like Abraham Lincoln, George Washington, Jimmy Carter. England has produced some greats as well, like Lloyd George, Winston Churchill. And so far, Prince William seems to be pretty solid in his role in the royal family of Great Britain. All of the good leaders in history knew it just wasn't about getting power and maintaining it and lining their own pockets. They knew they had been brought that, to that position in order to serve, to serve their nations. In the same way, when a person enters into a marriage with that attitude, how, here is what I can give to my spouse, 
Here's how I can love and serve them in the power of the Holy Spirit. I'm not here to get power and dominance, but rather to help my spouse flourish and become all that they can be. When people enter into it with that frame of mind and intention, that marriage has a huge chance of success and going the long-term distance. Well, secondly, there's a principle of this Christian idea of submission in marriage that it is modeled after the relationship between Jesus and the church. Verse 25, Paul writes, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So how did Jesus love and establish the church? Well, if you think about his journey, Jesus left heavenly glory, came to earth. He was born into poverty, worked with his hands as a carpenter, spent three and a half years of his public ministry preaching, teaching, healing people, modeling for the church what its mission was and how we were to get along and work together. Then Jesus did the ultimate. He laid down his life to defeat sin, death, and the devil and pay the price for our eternal freedom. Then he was resurrected to everlasting life and he unleashed his movement known as the church, which has been growing steadily for the last two and a half, 2,000 years. And it claims the allegiance of almost two and a half billion people on planet earth. In a word, Jesus loved the church by going all out in service and by sacrificing his own life. So husbands, that is how you were supposed to love your wife. And you're going, whoa, Pastor Dan, that is a high calling. Yeah, I'm not going to dumb it down. I'm not going to water it down. It's a huge high calling. But that is the proper context that this whole idea of submission makes any sense at all. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. There were two women. Uh, they were both in their 30s. They were friends. And one of them was a follower of Jesus. Regularly went to church, was doing all the things in her Christian life. And she had this great friend who was a vocal and ardent feminist. And the two were great friends and they respected each other. And the Christian lady kept inviting her friend to church. And usually there was a conflict or something. And just as the years went by, no, thanks for the invite, but I'm not going to be able to make it. All of a sudden, one day, the unchurched friend surprised her Christian friend and said, you know what? I'm going to come to church with you on Sunday. And the Christian friend was so excited. Oh, that's wonderful. That's fantastic. Thanks. Do you want to meet me there? Do you want me to pick you up? And they were both really nervous. And she ended up picking her up, bringing her to church. And they walked in and the service is going on. And, and you know, the music's happening. And they like that. And, and the kid's story was interesting, like Mariah's was today. That was fantastic, by the way. Good job, Mariah. She's really enjoying the service, and then finally the pastor gets up, and he's preaching on these exact verses, and he reads those verses about wives submit to your husbands, and the Christian girl is just dying inside. She's like, oh no, this is the worst, this is the worst sermon for my feminist friend to hear. This is a nightmare, this is terrible, and she was so freaked out what she thought, she couldn't even look at her. And finally, the service is going on, the sermon's going on, and the pastor says, you know, 
This is how that actually looks. And it's modeled after Christ. And he described, as I've tried to just do, the lengths that Jesus went to, to love, to serve, to ultimately give his life for the church. And that's the context of submission. Finally, the service is over and the, the church woman looks over at her unchurched friend and she was kind of expecting to see her angry, arms folded, upset. But instead, she had tears coming down her face. And as they embraced, she said, you know what? If I could ever meet a man who loved me like that, I would be happy to submit. You know, it's the example of Jesus that changes everything. Well, now the Apostle Paul turns his attention from the wives to the husbands. Husbands, don't think you're getting off easy. Here you go. Picking it up in verse 25. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word. And to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. For he who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body just as Christ does for the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother <coughs> excuse me, and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. It starts with the basic command, husbands, love your wives. Okay, that sounds good, but we need a little bit more specifics. Paul says, just as Christ loved the church, gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word. That sounds really Christian and wonderful and great. What in the world does that mean? Well, Jesus gave his life. We can catch that part. He gave it on a cruel Roman cross 2,000 years ago to pay the debt of sin for all humankind that we could never pay ourselves. Why? Bible scholar Frank Thielman says this. He says he did this to cleanse the people who would make up the church from their sin to set them apart as God's special people. This cleansing, sanctifying action was applied to them when they were washed in the verbal proclamation of the gospel. That's where Paul says, by the word. That is when they heard the gospel preached, believed it, and were sealed as God's special people by the Holy Spirit. Okay, that makes so much more sense. Then in verse 27, Paul really uses that imagery of Jesus as the groom and church as the bride. And to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. That is our position as followers of Jesus. That's our position as a church. Because Jesus has paid the price to cleanse us once and for all, we remain cleansed, holy, and blameless in his sight. Now, of course, we as individuals and as the church in history, we have sinned. Our unbelieving world is quick to point out the big ones, the Spanish Inquisition, the, uh, the Crusades. We are a sinful people, but we remain a forgiven people. That means we can repent of our sins, 
move past them and go into the future without kind of hanging our head in defeat and despair and depression. In Christ, we are individually and collectively forgiven and restored to that pure, clean state, just like a bride and groom on their wedding day. So, what's all the practical implications of that in a marriage relationship? Well, husbands and wives, I believe we should be preaching the gospel to each other regularly. We should be reminding each other that we are forgiven and free, not eternally guilty. Now, that matters in the nitty-gritty, practical, day-to-day reality of marriage big time. Because husbands, we are prone to say something that is stupid, hurtful, insensitive. And when we ask for forgiveness, we make it right in our actions, then the offended spouse should indeed forgive and let it go. Works the other way. Wives can do things that hurt a husband. But when she comes and apologizes... We need to forgive and let it go because nothing kills a marriage quite like hauling out your laundry list of past failures whenever the other person steps out of line. I tell young couples this in premarital counseling all the time. They got to eliminate these kind of phrases from their marriage relationship. Oh, that's the same stupid thing you did last time. You always do that. That's a deadly practice. It kills any motivation to change. Instead, preach the gospel to each other. Forgive, forget, move ahead. From living out the gospel, Paul moves to caring for your own body. And he points out that everybody does that naturally. We wash our bodies, we feed her, we exercise, we do all that good stuff. Paul says in marriage, the two have become one. So the husband should love and care for his wife's needs just like he cared for his own body when he was single. Honestly, Ocean View Community Church, I want to say this morning, this is radical thinking in our culture today. This is 180 degrees to what our culture is proclaiming. Because our culture basically says it's about you, your needs, your happiness, your state of mind. And if your marriage isn't giving that to you, then you need to get out of it. That's why we see marriages lasting so little time. But when each person in the marriage is thinking about the other person first, you have a solid marriage that can endure the worst that is thrown at it. Whether it's a COVID-19 pandemic, being isolated for two weeks, financial difficulties, close family difficulties. Marriage where it is me first, those ones are over in 10 months. Marriages that are you first... Those last a lifetime. Finally, Paul in this section hits one more crucial element for marriages. He says, make sure your marriage has the proper start. Verse 31, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. If you're a single young adult who would like to get married someday, listen up to this. If you're a young dating adult, listen to this. If you're a divorcee who is considering dating again, listen up to this. In marriage, this idea is really important that both the husband and the wife are to leave their family of origin. Now, I don't mean leave in the sense that you cut off all the relationships, you don't talk to them again. That's not it at all. Obviously, it doesn't mean that. What it does mean is your prime loyalty 
shifts from your family of origin to your spouse. And when this doesn't occur in a marriage, it's absolutely deadly. Back in my youth pastor days, when I was a youth pastor, I saw this lived out with one particular family who had teenagers. And the mother never did this biblical step of switching that primary loyalty from her family of origin to her spouse. And as a result, she'd be going along with her week, she'd be doing all the normal mom things, making sure her three kids got to school, making lunches, doing uh, her job she did part-time, all those wonderful things. And then all of a sudden, she would get a call from her parents in Vancouver. And they would say, hey, we haven't seen you in a while, we want to see you. She would drop everything, get in her car, and zip to the ferry. She would be over in Vancouver in a heartbeat the moment they called. She'd be in the ferry lineup. She would be calling her husband saying, hey, I had to go. I'm going to be with uh, my parents in Vancouver. You need to leave work early today, pick up the kids, make dinner, get them to school in the morning, and make sure life happens. She'd be gone for two, three days. This became a repeated pattern. I... I watched that marriage start to crumble. The husband began to behave in worse and worse ways. Finally, that whole marriage just blew apart. I was just a young, punk, single youth pastor, but it left a profound impression on me. The importance of switching that primary loyalty from your family of origin to your new family. When it's healthy, the two aren't in competition. But there's a definite order, spouse first, then your family of origin. Well, finally, we come to our final verse where Paul makes a really bold statement. He says in Ephesians 5.32, This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. Paul makes this powerful statement linking the picture of a husband and wife in self-giving care and love for each other to give us insight into how Jesus and the church are supposed to operate. Bible scholar William Hendrickson explains it this way. He says, The union of Christ with the church, so that from the sweep of eternal delight in the presence of the Father, God's only begotten Son plunged himself into the dreadful darkness and awful anguish of the cross on Calvary. And if you think about it, that's exactly what Jesus did. His descent was from the highest place in the universe to the lowest moment when he was on the cross, giving his life in complete and total anguish on Calvary. And he says, in order to save his rebellious people, gathered from among all the nations of the world, even to dwell in their hearts through his Spirit, and at last to present them to himself as his own bride, with whom he becomes united in such intimate fellowship. And that is such an important concept for each one of us to understand, whether or not we're married, single, divorced, remarried, widowed, just hoping to meet the right person someday. No matter the romantic relationships in our lives or the lack of them, Each and every person who follows Jesus and trusts him to be their Savior and Lord, each of us makes up the bride of Christ, the church. And look at the -the over-the-top lengths Jesus as the great bridegroom has gone to to make sure we are given hope, we are given a mission, we are given the power to carry out that mission. We're provided for, we're looked after. 
even in the midst of awful things like this COVID-19 pandemic. You know, Jesus, Jesus didn't just get the church started 2,000 years ago, and then he's been on a beach somewhere sipping margaritas ever since. It promises in the Bible that when two or three of us are gathered, even if it's doing church online, then he is right here in our midst. If Jesus is not in our midst and empowering us, you know what that makes us, Ocean View Community Church? It makes us a service club. We are no different in reality than the Kinsmen or the Lions Club or the Rotary Club. Now, those are all good, wonderful organizations, but they are gatherings of people doing good things on their own strength and wisdom. But the church is radically different. The church is the presence of Jesus Christ, the risen Lord of glory. And when we gather, He is in our midst. He's giving us power as a church to fulfill His mission. Right now, in this day and age, when we face financial worries, COVID-19, wars in parts of the globe, horrible dictators running countries, out-of-control technology, you can look at all that and get depressed and go cry in the corner, or you can see it for the opportunity that it is. This just might be the church's moment to shine. I want to close with Bill Hybels' famous statement about the church. This is the beautiful words he wrote about the church. He says, Nothing on earth has greater potential to change lives and carry out his kingdom work in your community than your local church. There's nothing like the local church when it's working right. Its beauty is indescribable. Its power is breathtaking. Its potential is unlimited. No other organization on earth is like the church. Nothing else even comes close. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. Now that is a high calling worth getting excited about. Amen? Give me an amen in the comment section if you're agreeing this morning. Mariah, our children's ocean life administrator, is going to come and do the pastoral prayer for us right now. So Mariah, come and pray for us. Thank you, Pastor Darren. The men who kicked off the Protestant Reformation in 